start tonight by reading our passage, and then I'm going to talk about it, which is surprising, since that's what I do every week. We went to a, sorry, we went to a funeral yesterday uh, in a very different part of um, faith, and uh, they, about six different times in the service, told us what they were going to do, and when they were going to do it, and how they were going to do it. Uh, so I just became very self-conscious when I did that. <laughs> Sorry. You got my inner dialogue there. <clears throat> Matthew 5 says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Uh, Before I get into this, I want to say about this passage, this was a tough one for me to figure out how to divide up. Uh, We've been going pretty methodically and and giving each verse, if necessary, uh, its own space. And then as we got past the Beatitudes, kind of giving each complete thought its own space every week. And we got last week into what uh, I think are primarily Jesus extrapolating on this statement that he made in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've come not to abolish but to fulfill. I think he goes from there and gives us four sort of examples. He sort of works this statement out in real world situations. He talks about murder and anger, which we spent last week talking about. And then the three that we're going to get into tonight, he talks about lust and adultery. He talks about divorce and he talks about oaths or vows or how we deal with um, making promises, making statements and keeping our word and those kinds of things. And so uh, my original plan was to give each of these three their own week, like we've done everything else. But I want us to really see these through that lens. I want us to understand the way that each of these fulfill Uh, or are sort of a carrying out in real flesh and blood of this statement that Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to embody it, to bring it to life in humanity in a way that it wasn't alive before. And so I wanted to pull these together because I think they all do that in a similar way. And last week, what we looked at last week does as well, but these do in a similar way. And in fact, the last one where he talks about your word uh, and oaths and vows really bleed back up into the two that, that we'll talk about first, the two that he mentions first, which is lust, which are lust and divorce. Uh, 
they have to do with where the things that we say, how they, uh, how that plays out in our lives. And so I want to do that. Um, and so pulling them together helps with that a little bit. I also just want to confess to you that it gets hard preaching through these. We went from a section of the text, which is, uh, is difficult in its own way to preach through, but it's not difficult for us to embrace when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in hearts. Those are easy things in, in a sense to talk about. Now, they, if we really hear them, tend to produce conviction in us where that fruit is not living in us in the ways that we might like to assume, but they're not as difficult or thorny to talk about when I look at this section, we move from Jesus doing that, from Jesus talking about being the light of the world, which is a really sort of uh, challenging but bright and a thing that will buoy us if we will allow it. And then he goes into four areas of really sort of putting his finger on places in our hearts and our souls that for some of us are particularly tender. And so as a preacher, I ask myself how much uh, number one, I don't ever want to run from the text. I don't ever want to run from what Jesus is doing. And so my first on my priority list is we're going to deal with what he says, even if it's tender or difficult for us. Uh, but I also think about, do we do that four consecutive weeks in very difficult areas? Or is it okay for us to look at each one and then look at what unifies them and allow the Lord to speak to us in those areas. And so I want, here's what I want you to hear me say tonight. I want to deal with all of these uh, with integrity. I want to deal with what's here and what's here is difficult in some ways. And, uh, and I'm not going to spend a whole week on every single one of them. So if there's one of them that feels like I, I really need a fullness in that, let's talk and we can talk about that. Uh, but I don't want to evade what's difficult. I do want us to see the heart of what's here because I think this statement from Jesus that I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And here, here's what that looks like in these different areas of your life is the heart of what he's doing here. Now, let me say, having said that, it doesn't get any easier. He's going to challenge us next to forgive in a way that will blow our minds and make us want to turn and walk away. And so the point isn't to get to easier text. The point is to see the heart of this particular thing, which I think he does in a rhythmic way with a few different examples. Uh, and if nothing else, uh, I will lean into the fact that Jesus dealt with all of these in only one paragraph each, and I'm going to give them a full Sunday to talk about them. So, uh, so I do think um, that, uh, that, like I said, I want to pay attention to each specific thing, but... Before I'm done tonight, I want to allocate some time to a bigger picture that unifies um, all three of these subjects. As I go through them individually, I'm, I'm asking you to remember uh, a couple of things. Um, we talk about these things, number one, because they're here, because Jesus talked about them. Uh, but I want you to remember that, that the things that he talks about here are fit into some category for all of us. They either are immediately very real for us, where we've walked through the depths of something he talks about here, or we're currently in the midst of it. And uh, there are examples of that in all three of these for all of us. Um, or because no matter how well we sense that we're cruising through life, 
Um, and we, we come to, when he talks about lust or he talks about divorce or he talks about keeping our word, we may feel like I'm doing pretty well in those categories. It's still important for us to hear uh, what he says here, number one, because there's somebody in this room with you who's dealing with this in a much more real and deep way than you are, and it matters that you understand the heart of Jesus for that person in this. And number two, these are very real dangers for all of us, and I think it's we, we should be very cautious that we don't blow by texts that deal with sin or difficulty that we're not currently experiencing or that we think we're somehow immune from. Uh, I don't say that to spook anyone or to throw us into a version of Christianity that's fear-based or that's just about sin management. I say it because I've seen some of the finest Christian people I know undone, often in a way that uh, they and people around them never imagined was possible and by, by each of these. And I can say that I've seen that happen in my own family. And I've seen that happen in a lot of people close to me. So my encouragement to you is to receive these words of Jesus, whether or not you feel like they apply immediately to some situation in your life, not only as a caution to you, but as a gift. Because um, the heart of Jesus here is for all of his followers to hear what we were made for and to hear what is there to pull us away from what we were made for and how to live into who we're made to be. So don't assume that this is for someone else. Receive them as the loving effort of Jesus to draw you more deeply into the life of God because that's what it's there for. If one or more of these areas has already cut you deeply, this isn't condemnation for you. Uh, You've likely already learned that the words and the warnings of Jesus here are true. You know about what he's talking. And his invitation is for you as much as anyone. You know that you can't, be, you can't keep it together or make yourself whole by your own efforts. So as you understand better than ever your need for God in this area, to assume, your need for God to assume control of your life in whatever area you feel wounded in, know that he's ready to do that. And he does it not because he's, he's not disappointed in you and he's not reluctantly taking the wheel of your life. He's stepping into these spaces again because he loves you and he's pleased by your humility to acknowledge you need him to do that and that he's eager to have deep communion with you. One of the, one of the difficulties and one of the things that I think is very difficult to avoid For instance, if we spend four weeks in a row looking at this sin and this sin and this sin, one of the things that's hard for most of us who were raised in a particular kind of evangelical culture, uh, it's it's very hard for us to to really see the heart of God in that. Uh, So I want to say this really clearly. Um, When you embrace, when you listen to the Lord speak, when you hear the words of Jesus and you embrace his way, in any given moment, no matter where you've been, no matter what you feel like you failed in, when you embrace his way, that is never met by, it's about time. Never. That's never the heart of the Lord for you. It is always met by his joy in your receiving his love. That's always the persistent heart of God, even and especially when dealing with areas of brokenness in our life. All right. So having said all that, let's look at these individually and then we'll come back to to that. 
uh, what I think kind of unifies them all. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus deals with the law that they knew, which was you shouldn't commit adultery. And then he says, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lusts has already committed adultery within, with her in his heart. And then he goes on to give these exaggerated sort of instructions about what to do and how to avoid that. Um, I think Jesus is clear here about the fact that the sin of lust, which is not the same as the temptation of attraction. I'll talk about that a little bit in just a second, but the sin of lust is serious. Um, It's more serious, it would seem, than people seem to think, the people that were sitting around them. And I say that because it felt necessary to him to say out loud that number one, this is adultery of the heart. So what you were commanded, what you already know is against the law of God, which is adultery. Understand that this is that sin inside of you, in your, in your heart, in your inner being. And then he feels like it's important to say, here's what you should do to avoid falling into that. Cut off your hand, pull out your eye, extreme sort of statement. Um, this is, uh, he says, in the context of lust, um, it's better to be without those parts of your body than to have your whole body literally cast into Gehenna. And that is the same phrasing in the original language here as what we looked at when Jesus said, when Jesus talked about anger last week, this is, this is what, if you say you fool to someone, if your heart is in that space where this is how you see and express yourself to another human being, it's like you're going to be consumed by fire that is like hell. And he compares it to Gehenna, which is, again, the burning trash dump outside the city limits of Jerusalem. So we're back to this image of burning garbage. He says, it's better for you to do whatever you have to do to sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice all the way up to parts of you that you consider essential for your daily life than for all of you to be consumed by a burning pile of trash, which is where this lust will lead, will lead you. When you give lust control of your mind, it becomes the controlling covenant of your mind. And, and this is my way of sort of seeing into his, his uh, drawing this into the space of adultery. You have made in marriage, if you're married, you've made a covenant with another person. And when you give lust control of your mind, you, enter, you transfer your covenant. Because now this agreement has control of your mind. You make an agreement with that desire inside of you that you're going to be loyal to it. You're going to obey it. You're going to do what it encourages you to do. So if you're married, that's disloyalty to your spouse. That is a turning from the covenant that you made with your spouse. And both for married people and single people, because this is not, lust is, is, is not, uh, one of the assumptions, one of the really poor assumptions that a lot of us uh, uh, who grew up in a certain part of the church inherit, I think not intentionally, but just because it's never really dealt with, is that somehow when we get married, that this struggle will change. And it just doesn't change all that much. Um, 
But it's also important as you come to this passage, when you hear Jesus make a, make a statement about adultery and you feel like, well, I'm not married, that you don't dismiss this if you're not married. Because for both married and single people, lust in the way that Jesus is talking about it is disobedience to the way of God. And it's a forsaking, even if you're not in covenant with another human, you're in covenant with the Lord. And it's a forsaking of that covenant that you've made with the Lord because you're giving control of your body and your mind to the desire of your body instead of giving that control to the spirit. This is an ongoing struggle. It is, uh, there's not a magic wand that takes this away, but that's the essence of what is happening and what I think Jesus is speaking to. Jesus also cautions us um, that this is a sin that if you do give it that control, it will drag your body into a burning trash fire. He's frank and he's honest that um, when you allow this to, con- to have control, it will take you places that you don't initially intend to go, and it will take all of you into those places. Um, I want to try to speak plainly about this without being unnecessarily dramatic because I think it's easy in some of my own teaching in the past and other teaching that I've, I've been exposed to. It's easy for this dealing with this subject of lust to go one very familiar direction uh, that results in a whole lot of guilt, for, especially for men, just to be honest. Um, and I don't think that's Jesus's intention here. I do think his intention, as I said, is to deal with this seriously. But, but um, so here's, here's what I was, most of us know by experience in one way or another, and you may know this by experience and you just haven't categorized your experience as lust. But, but I think most of us know by experience that there is truth in that statement, that if you give control to lust, it will drag all of you into a place that feels like I'm being consumed by some kind of fire here that I have no control over um, anymore. And this subject often gets reduced to a sermon, as I said, about the particular sins of men who can't control themselves. But I want to be really clear that lust, I am firmly convinced at 41 years old and 20 years into uh, ministering in the church that lust is an equal opportunity temptation and sin that this is not unique. This is not a unique struggle for men. It manifests differently in different people. And some of those manifestations you can sort of stereotype by gender. Uh, But even that is not always accurate. And if you think it is, um, hear me say generically, because I'm not going to tell you individual people's story, that it's not. Um, uh, And I know that for a fact. So let me also say this. Though physical... Sexual lust, I think, is the most obvious and immediate meaning here. There is more to lust than that. Lust is craving for something that does not belong to you. Not just seeing something, not just being tempted, but sort of indulging a craving for something that does not belong to you that you want to meet your needs or your desires. That's the essence of what lust is. So that temptation and the sin of giving into it is a real problem for most men when it comes to sexual attraction. It's a real struggle. But it's not unique to men, and it's not unique to sexual desire. Um, Both men and women find themselves tempted by all kinds of different lusts. Both men and women find themselves glancing at something that doesn't belong to them 
that the Lord hasn't given them and pondering how the possession of that thing or the use of that thing or that person might meet or gratify some desire that we have. It's a normal temptation for all of us. Um, And as is always the case, and it's hard for us to distinguish, the temptation itself is not the sin. The noticing of a beautiful woman is not the sin. The noticing of a well-dressed man catching your attention, that's not in and of itself the sin. The vulnerability of being lonely and realizing someone more emotionally engaged than my spouse might eliminate this feeling of loneliness for me. Noticing those things means you have eyes. It means you're human. The sin is handing them control of your mind, your heart. And as Jesus cautions, ultimately handing them control of your body. Because if they have control of your mind and your heart, they will take control of your body, which is his promise here. They will lure you into another kind of sin, to a more physical sin. And they'll drag you into this self-condemnation, which just like anger, I think, is ultimately what happens here. It takes you to a place where it's not just a matter of how God sees this, although that's absolutely present. It's not just a matter of how you sin against your spouse or someone else when you give in to the control of lust, but it's ultimately a self-condemnation. You will find yourself realizing what you have done, and it will be hard to live with yourself. Your mind will lead your body into sin, and your body will find itself being consumed like common trash thrown on a fire. We all know the pain of, of that sort of self-condemnation, of being in that place where you feel like, I'm useless, I, I, I've, I'm worthless in this. And it only, the only point, I think, in indulging that sin where it ceases to hurt is when you have indulged it so long that those fires have burned away your nerves and you become numb to it. And that happens, but that's not the first step for most of us. Uh, I, I, I saw... Really great, quick illustration of this uh, just recently. I just saw a few minutes of a movie about the life of Ernest Hemingway. I didn't see the whole thing, and so this is not an endorsement or telling you to go to watch it. What I did see had some pretty strong language in it. But there's this moment where Ernest Hemingway is talking to this young writer who sort of idolizes him. Um, and this is late in Hemingway's life, and I think by this point he's on his, on his I'm not a Hemingway guy really, but I looked up, and I think by this point he was on his fourth wife. Um, and he's telling this, this young guy that the only, the only time I really felt loved in my life was with my first wife. And I was happy, and I was fulfilled, and I felt loved. And I went on a trip, and somewhere on that trip, and he says this in a way that you sort of get the sense that just because it's what I did and it was normal, somewhere on that trip, I stopped in another city, and I slept with another woman who he says would later become my second wife, the rich wife, which I guess had some meaning. Uh, But I stopped, and I slept with her. And then when I got home, and my, my wife... My actual wife at the time was waiting for me with our child. And the way that they looked at me, um, I don't remember the exact words he says, but he just says, I hated myself. I, I was, my, whatever was pure in me was gone. And that was before there was any knowledge on his wife's part of what he had done. His body had been dragged into a place where he felt the fires of hell. He felt that self-condemnation. And this is where 
this takes us. And I, I, don't wanna, I, don't, I don't have time to dwell on this, but it's worth noting here because we often do a dualistic thing with our minds and our bodies, or our spirits and our bodies um, in Christianity, but your body matters. When Jesus came and, and started dealing with our spirits, it didn't take our bodies off the table so that what we do with them is irrelevant. You were made in the image of God, your body included. Your body is worth more than the trash burned on the outskirts of the city. Your body is meant to be a temple. It's meant to be a living home for the spirit of God as God restores all of you into his image. It's not incidental, and we do this in really subtle ways. We think our physical self is incidental to our spiritual life. It's not incidental to your spiritual life. It is the earthly home for your life with God. So that part of this matters as well. Okay, I need to get to the other two, and I'll keep it a little bit um, simpler on these two. In verses 31 and 32, He says, it was said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is something we could spend many weeks on, the nuances and all the implications of what he says here. Uh, I want to try to keep it simple and direct as to what I think the heart of this is. I think this is a lot like what he did when he compared anger to murder, um, in that for his immediate hearers, and maybe for us, it seems like he's actually adding weight to the law rather than lightening its load, that he's making a law that they knew more difficult, more complicated, um, but that's not his deeper intention. So this is a bit of of a simplification, but under the Old Testament law, they were allowed to divorce as long as they jumped through the proper hoops and had certified that they did everything they did by the letter of the law. And Jesus says, but I'm telling you, no matter how tidily you do this, no matter how official you try to make it by following the man-made rules, divorce is out of sync with the way that God intends you to live, period. Um, Now, the period, when I say that without qualification, it may seem like an exaggeration of what he actually says, because he does actually, in the way that we read this, he offers an out. He says, except on the ground of unchastity, unless your spouse has been unfaithful to you, that, uh, that God doesn't want you to divorce. And I'm not looking to minimize that uh, phrase in this at all. I just want to underst- I, w- I want us to understand what he's saying because we tend to still look at this from a very uh, how do we stay within the confines of the law and when is it okay? When does the law allow us to do this? That's just our nature as humans is to try to understand the rules and understand the exceptions to the rules. And I don't think that's exactly the heart of Jesus in the way that he's talking about this. I think what he's saying is when your spouse choose if your spouse chooses to be unfaithful to commit adultery, they have already affected, effectively chosen to leave the bonds of marriage. So divorce has already been initiated in, in that case. I don't think his point is divorce is out of step with God's intention for marriage. Unless your spouse is unfaithful, then God is sort of indifferent or in, to it or in favor of it. I think he's saying God never intends a marriage to end in divorce and When a married man or woman enters a relationship with someone outside of the marriage, that person has ruptured the marriage. 
And that's contrary to what God intends, but it's already happened. And so in that case, when your spouse has done that, divorce has already been set into motion by your spouse. The details of how that gets settled legally are not, I don't think, God's primary concern here. What matters is that the unfaithful spouse has disrupted the covenant God sealed in marriage. And that's not what God intends in any case. Um, To clarify on that, that doesn't mean that once someone is unfaithful, the marriage is immediately and officially over. It does mean, I think, that adultery sets in motion uh, that rupturing of the marriage and the restoration of a marriage has to be purposeful. It has to involve repentance and forgiveness and a fresh acknowledgement of the covenant sealed by God is necessary to restore the marriage. But the point here ultimately is that God never purposes divorce. And they had used the law and certificates, pieces of paper to mask that. Jesus is fulfilling the heart of God's law here. Um, And so he's communicating, this is God's intention. This is his heart in all cases. Okay. And then in verses 33 through 37, uh, this section, I think, ties the whole, this whole segment on lust, adultery, divorce, and oaths together with the revelation of how Jesus is bringing fulfillment of the law. In essence, Jesus says, the law set up a sort of hierarchy of promises so that if you make a vow before the Lord, you're obligated to keep it. But humans always prove crafty in finding ways to try to find loopholes in the rules. So you've begun to find ways out of keeping your word is what he's saying, as long as it wasn't some kind of official vow before the Lord. And that's not who God intends his people to be. God intends his people to exhibit an integrity that unifies their words and their lives and that creates oneness between who he is and their lives. His image displayed in his people. And as I said, this is, I think, the point of all three passages here, all four going back to last week's passage on murder and anger. The law prohibited murder, not just to protect people from being killed or to punish killers, but to honor the image of God in all people. So you've heard it was said, do not murder, but I'm telling you, honor the image of God in everyone around you by not allowing the fires of anger to blur your vision so that you cease to see the person you're angry with as a beloved child of God made in his image. And so that the fires of anger don't burn and mar the image of God within you because when it consumes you, you no longer are reflecting his image in that way. You've heard it was said, don't cheat on your husband or your wife. But I'm telling you the point of marriage isn't just the creation of restrictions on what you can and can't do sexually or who you can and can't do it with. The point of marriage is to put the selfless love of God on display as a husband lays down his life for his wife and gives himself to her fully. And as a wife bears with her husband and gives herself to him fully. So don't allow your mind or your body, bodily desires to lure you out of the goodness of God's purpose, out of the beauty of a fidelity that permeates every part of your being. And the word to all of us here, I think, single or married, is instead of trying to use what isn't yours to make yourself happy, 
trust God to give you what he made you for. You've heard that it was said, don't divorce unless you get the right documents. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, understand that when a man and a woman are joined by a marriage covenant, God's unrelenting purpose is for that marriage to grow in its unity in the way that it reflects the love between Christ and the church. So any disruption of it, whether by a husband or a wife wandering outside of the covenant or someone simply deciding that they want out of the deal is, according to what Jesus says here, a a disruption of God's purposes. And let me say really clearly that we know that he forgives and he heals even those, those kinds of disruptions. The song we sang where we sing to Jesus, you're my one defense, you're my righteousness, is the truest thing that we can say when we're talking about sin of any kind. None of us, because we have done or haven't done anything, is more righteous than anyone else before God. We lean into and need the forgiveness of Jesus for any of us to be righteous. So we know he forgives and heals even this, but that doesn't mean on the front end, as we talk about what God's intention is, that we take God's grace for granted. His grace is meant always to shape us and restore us to his image and purpose, not to provide cover for our fleeing from the goodness of his image when that shaping is painful or difficult. And I think that is the the distinction. You've heard it said, don't make a vow to the Lord and then fail to keep it. But I tell you, every word you say, the Lord hears. And there's no reason to say anything you don't mean or that isn't true. Live in the ease of honesty. Don't promise things that you can't do or you don't intend to do. Feel free to say no when you recognize your limitations so that you're not leading people on for things that you're not going to be able to fulfill. Gladly say yes when you have the opportunity to serve and to give yourself away for the sake of showing God and his image to the world around you. I think the big picture of these three and really four paragraphs is this. In the law, this is, this is the, the clearest picture that I have of this. In the law uh, that these people knew in the Old Testament law, there were lines on the road that were meant to convince you not to drive off the road and over the side of a bridge. That's what the law did. In Jesus, the lines are not gone. He didn't come to paint over the lines. But instead of seeing them as restrictions, you should see them as these beautiful reminders that God built you a sturdy bridge that is the way to real life. So don't be tempted by the lies that you can drive off the side of the bridge and somehow find a better place or find a better way. See the beauty of life as God intended, not consumed by anger, not chasing these insatiable lusts to possess something different than what God made you for, not despising or forsaking your covenant because it's hard or because you're hurt or because you're unhappy and not trying to please others or protect yourselves with the way that you use and manipulate work. manipulate words. The truth is, I think, and you probably talked about the anger part of this in your comm group this week as we did, but you will be angry at times. God offers a way out that does not consume you. You will desire someone or something that isn't yours at times. 
you will find deeper satisfaction in what God has actually given you. You will get tired of your spouse and have thoughts of how much happier and better off you would be without them. God is eager to show you the beauty and the joy of the long path of giving your life away for an imperfect person who you get tired of sometimes, if you'll trust him to do that. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. None of this is possible without that total fulfillment of the law, without him making a way for us to become the righteousness of God. But his fulfillment through his teaching, through his life, his death, his resurrection, that fulfillment, not our sheer willpower or determination to stay between the lines, enables us to receive and to embody these words. Don't just, for us, I think, as we hear a sermon on a passage like this, don't just excerpt out this passage, which by itself seems rather negative, restrictive, pessimistic, if you just look at it uh, in a vacuum. Receive these words in the full context of the life and teaching of Jesus. He has fulfilled the law. He enables us to see the goodness of God working from the beginning of creation to point us to the life we were created to live. Jesus shows us that the law isn't just about behavior management or making things off limits. It's about honoring the image of God in us and honoring the image of God in other people. So we can receive these words not just as restrictions or cautions against sin, though they are cautions, but as reminders that we're made for something more. We're made for something different, something better than the temporary pleasures and protections that we're often prone to grab onto when we're afraid or when we're weary or when we're hurting. We're made for true freedom from fear, not just temporary distraction from it. We're made for real rest in God's provision, not just momentary escape from weariness. We're made for real healing of our pain and not just immediate relief when we hurt. All of that is available, not because we will ourselves into rule following, but because when we trust the power of the spirit of Jesus that has already overcome sin and death to work in us, when we allow the grace of Jesus to shape us, we're restored one moment at a time to the image of God. Pray with me. Father, would you reveal to us who you are? Would you uh, seal in our hearts your goodness and your love for us? And would you protect us from anything that the world brings into our eyes and our ears and our experience uh, that might interrupt our understanding of your love? And as we listen to Jesus talk about the law and about his fulfillment of it, may we hear in those words, that gift, that gift that you are constantly with us, restoring us to your image, that your invitation is, is an invitation. It's not condemnation. It is a word that says, come and be made who you were really made to be, and that we can trust you with that, even when we fail, even when we breach one of these things or other things that the church has said, these are unforgivable sins, or these are sins that push someone outside the camp. Even in those moments, you stand ready and waiting to joyfully embrace us, that your heart is to love us and for us to receive that love. And we pray all of that 
In Jesus' name, amen.